Before we conclude this magnificent series on the life work and theories of Clayton Christensen, I thought it was fitting to release this last episode on Clay's birthday, the 6th of April, because we started on his anniversary of his passing. And I thought it was a nice element of renewal coming into Easter. And I think Clay would actually like that, not having known the man, but I have a feel for what type of person that he was. I want to thank you, our listener, for all the wonderful messages that you've sent in. I've got some lovely messages from people who are touched by the series and indeed Clay and his theories throughout their own lives. And I want to thank the Christensen family as well for their support and all the wonderful, wonderful guests that participated in this series to make it what it was. It was an absolute privilege. Before I launch into our very special guest to close this series, I want to thank our sponsor, Gate One. Gate One has offices in Dublin, London, and New York, and works with some of the world's most leading organizations to drive meaningful change. You can find Gate One at gateoneconsulting.com. Two last things. One is for those who've enjoyed this series approach, we have an upcoming four part series with Michael Tushman and Charles O'Reilly on their work on the ambidextrous organization, Lead and Disrupt exploit and explore and indeed the corporate explorer they are joined by their colleague andrew bins that's up next and to start this series i thought it would be fitting where i looked through many many of the talks that clayton gave and i found this beautiful closing to one of those talks where he talked about the christians and family and indeed himself having a brand i'm going to start this series with that and then kick into our guest Thank you for all your attention and indeed for participating yourself in this series. See you soon. We decided with Matt and Christine and I that we would have a brand in our family. That is that the Christiansons are known for kindness. And nobody outside the family has that brand or have adopted it. But we have and we remember us, each other, every day that the Christians are known for kindness. And uh, I hope that our grandchildren know that they have the same brand. Our guest is an American scholar educator and religious leader who has been a general authority of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since April 2015 and was the church's 17th commissioner of church education from 2015 to 2019. He served previously as the 15th president of Brigham Young University in Idaho from 2005 to 2015 and as the dean of the Harvard Business School from 1995 to 2005 where he was also the George F. Baker Professor of Business Administration. He published an important series of studies on technological innovation with various co-authors. The organizational linkages or integration required to accomplish innovation is a thread that runs throughout these studies. These insights culminated in his book with Carlos Baldwin, Design Rules, The Power of Modularity, which explores the rules for integrating components that shaped innovation in the computer industry and many others. 
He studied economics with Clay Christensen in the fall of 1970 and became his dissertation advisor many years later, alongside previous guest on this series, Joe Bauer. He is with us today to celebrate the life and theories of his friend, Clayton Christensen, and indeed share some of his own theories. It is a great honor and a privilege to welcome Kim Bryce Clark. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aiden. Great to be here. It's great to have you with us, Kim. And I thought a brilliant way to start would be, I looked over some previous talks that you had given, and I found this brilliant talk that both you and Clay spoke at in 2013. And I'm going to play a little excerpt of it here. And then I'm going to connect it to a quote that you mentioned when Clay passed away to recognize his life. All of us, whether you're in a school or not, will teach other people about responsible leadership. So all of you, no, it doesn't matter what you do, all of you will teach responsible leadership, whether you intend to or not. This is what we came to at HBS. So we thought hard about what, sh what should we do as an institution to develop leaders who go out and really make the world a better place. Not, not rhetorically, but actually make the world a better place. What should we do as a school? And we had to come to grips with the issues that have been raised today about can you do that? We'll have any, you can talk about it, will have any effect. And we decided that whether you choose to or not, you will teach people about responsibility. I wanted to connect that to a quote that you wrote on the HBS website about Clay's impact on the world. You wrote that Clayton both taught and epitomized Harvard Business School's mission of educating leaders who make a difference in the world. He was a teacher in the truest sense of the word. He cared deeply about ideas and concepts and sought to help his students, whether in the classroom or his writings, to think harder and more creatively and to act more effectively and powerfully. He had a profound influence on his students primarily, however, but he cared about them. He loved the students and they felt it. Throughout his life, he sought to help people learn, grow, focus on what matters and in turn, influence others for good. He was brilliant and compassionate and an extraordinary colleague and a dear friend. I thought that would be a good way to set us up for this great friendship, both as a colleague, but also as a friend beyond the education realm that you and Clay had. Kim, I'd love you to tell us about it. Well, you're very kind. Uh, I, uh, I, I say, as you said, I first met Clay in 1970. Um, then we kind of reconnected when he moved to Boston, where we lived. Um, and uh, basically, we kind of grew up together <laughs> uh, and uh, had a lot of experiences together. Um, and, you know, he was, uh, from the very beginning, it was very clear, this was a very extraordinary human being. Um, not only was he, uh, and I'll just reiterate what I said in that quote, not only was he just amazingly talented and brilliant, but he was also the kind of guy that would show up to help people move, or if somebody needed help, he was the first one to be there. He just loved helping people. He had a great sense of love for his fellow mankind. It was amazing. 
um, and he was a great he was a great missionary. He uh, shared the gospel with people all the time. It was amazing. He was an amazing human being. And when we when I spoke about um, that he epitomized what we tried to do at HBS, uh, and especially was a just a remarkable teacher. I tried to emphasize in that quote, I'm not sure it came through as well as I hoped, but that it wasn't really the brilliance of his ideas or the fantastic capacity he had as a teacher that made his classes so memorable for his students. It was that he actually loved them, and they knew it. They felt it. And these are these are Harvard Business School students, uh, and they're worried about getting jobs, and they're trying to figure out what they're doing with their lives. And they ran into somebody who just absolutely cared about them and loved them, and that's what made his classes such an amazing experience. Um, the course he created at the school, which was called uh, BSSE Building and sustaining a successful enterprise uh, was so popular that in its heyday, it's still there, still going, in its heyday, virtually the entire student body took that class. It's an elective, but basically there were like eight or nine sections of the thing. You know, there were, had eight or 900 students take it. It's almost the whole student body in that second year of the MBA program. So it was an amazing experience to uh, be his friend and, and work with him. There was one thing I mentioned that talk that you gave and um, in it, there's a friend of the show, Charles Kahn as well, who was a former student of yours and also almost, as he says, did a PhD, but he was sitting in a room along, as you said, with Clay and both talking to you and he's like kind of going, looking at Clay and the way Clay thought and he went, I'm going to pass on the PhD for now. and. Uh, I, what I thought was remarkable about that, you were talking about ethics and responsibility and leadership, but I wanted to link it to something that's so important that you said. During it, you spoke so much about heart-based leadership, and I thought that was pretty fascinating. And that goes beyond religion. That goes to actually imagine you led an organization with the heart, connecting with people, making decisions both with the heart. And, and as you say, you also have to use the mind to put th shape on things, but you have to lead with the heart as well. I thought this is something that's not spoken about enough. And I'd love you to share your, your concepts and your thoughts on that. Sure. So I'll share a little bit with you where I'm working on a new book with two of my children, uh, who both work in, in the field of leadership and strategy. And I, uh, in that book, one of the things we say about leadership is that leadership is personal. It's a personal endeavor. It's very often, most importantly, carried out one by one and, 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 or in small groups. And one of the things that really outstanding and effective leaders do is they learn how to help people thrive. And that means in their work and in their lives, they care about the people. And one of the things that is so evident in, in, if you look at both data and experience of companies is that 
where people feel experience three things, they they thrive. One is they feel loved. They they just know that people that that their leader cares about them, really cares about them. And that means the leader gets to actually know them. This is something that a lot of leaders neglect because most people, at least in the paradigm of leadership that's out there in the world right now, which is kind of a hard-driving, go for, you know, go for excellence and, and is very task-oriented, a lot of leaders forget to find out, well, who are these people that work for me? even the ones just right around them. And uh, to really know them, care about them, and uh, take action in ways that strengthen and lift them. But where people are loved, uh, it makes a huge, huge difference. And where they, where they have uh, live in a world of high standards, so they're loved, and people, people kind of bless them with expectations that are high. What that does is it tells them it's not too high, so it's not unattainable, but it's high enough to be stretched them. And then when they are uh, invited to be accountable. So where they're loved and they're, they live with high standards, they're accountable, they, they thrive. And so it, all of that comes from the heart. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, people need to be loved, they need to be inspired, they need to be, to have vitality, they need to have expression, they need to have these things that just help them thrive, and that comes from the heart. There was a, something that you said again in that, and I just thought it, from all the conversations I've had with people talking about Clay, they always said that when he was in the room with, with them, no matter how busy he was, he made them feel like they were mo the most important person in the world. And there was something you were saying, and, and you were talking about the various leadership roles that you uh, had held, that you have to believe that I, I, yes, Aiden's coming in here, and he's interrupted me, and I have a huge list of things to do. But I have to believe that by closing my laptop, and giving him his full attention, that I believe that that's going to make some smaller increment that's going to compound over time and make a bigger difference in the world. I thought that was as a principle, or as Clay would say, a, a lens, a theory through which to see the world. It was such a powerful one. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I recognize this because I'm task oriented. I'm a task oriented person, but I have learned that it makes a huge difference in the organization and in the, in, in, in the world to take the time to really listen to people and care about them. So I've tried to make that a practice in my leadership and in, in the world. I'll give you one little example, a little tiny example of this. Um, and it was something I just felt impressed to do. It wasn't calculated. It just kind of came as an idea. Uh, I went into a meeting with, this is when I was at HBS, I went to a meeting with all the all the uh, women on the faculty who were not yet tenured. And there were probably, let's see, there, there must have been 20 of them around the table, 20 or 30 of them. And I welcomed them. They were gonna, it was kind of lunch and they were gonna ask questions and stuff. And I welcomed them. And I, I said, I'm really grateful that you're here. 
And I went around and I said, I don't know, I, I, I assume you know each other, but let me just make sure. And I went around and I introduced each person. I did. I had no notes. I went to each person, I explained, this is so-and-so. And she graduated from this universities. She did her PhD in this. These are the kind of papers she's published. This is the work she's doing right now. This is what she's teaching. And we're grateful to have her here on the faculty. I went through every single one of them. And then I worked at it because I had to kind of know all this about them. But it turned out I, I made it a point to know the faculty, like really know them, and, and be able to greet them by name when I saw them in the hall and to actually know what they were doing. And they were blown away. They couldn't believe that I had taken the time to get to know them. And, and recently, just, oh, it would have been last April, so not quite, maybe 10 months ago, I had a, uh, a meeting in Boston. I went to, I, I flew to the airport, and as I was in the airport, one of these women who had been in that room saw me and, you know, kind of went after me and, called my name and talked to me for a little bit. And she was, it was so fun to talk to her because she's, she's become a really, you know, important faculty member at HBS and done some really great things. And, and it was just really great to see that development. And really, that's a really important part of leadership is to develop people and give them real work and real responsibility, care about them, open up opportunities for them to find expression and inspiration. Yeah, that's all from the heart. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, well, maybe we'll get on to Clay, speaking of the heart and connecting with people. There was a couple of stories. I, I thought we'd share your stories of Clay and you were talking about, for firstly, you were his dissertation advisor on the famous paper that eventually became the book as well. And that's built on some of the foundations of your work and Joe Bowers as well. And we'll, I'd love to talk about in particular one of those papers. But I thought we'd maybe trigger this with two covers of two Forbes magazines. And I happen to have them, Kim, as well. And I'm going to share them. The first I'm going to share is the one where Clay is on the cover with Andy Grove, because this was a pivotal moment because Many people think the book was a runaway success. It wasn't. It was sitting on the shelves for a while, and then it got going. And Andy Grove played a pivotal role in that. So I'm going to share this. You know the cover, but for our audience, I'm going to share this uh, briefly. This is the, the cover, and you can just see the difference in size between uh, Clay and Andy Grove there in that picture as well. So maybe you'll take us away. What am I talking about here? Because our audience will be intrigued. Yeah. Well, let me tell you the story. Um, Clay uh, published the book. The actual publication date was in 2015, December of 20. No, December of. It would have been 19. I'm sorry, not 2015. 19. 1997, I think. And the cover, I think, the cover, I think, is in uh, 1998, 99, somewhere in there. Well, the book was published, and you know it's a it's a really wonderful book. It's a great book, 
but it was just another one of these business books that gets published and it sold i mean it it had sales but it wasn't a a bestseller by any means andy grove got hold of it and he was really worried about exactly the topic of the book he was worried that intel was going to be disrupted by companies who were going to come into the microprocessor business with low-cost microprocessors that weren't as functional and capable as what Intel created, but they were much less expensive. And he was worried about that. So he had Clay come out to Intel and, uh, and talk to senior people. So Clay came out and did a seminar for them and laid out the model and explain some examples. And the one that caught Andy, Andy Groh's attention was about steel mini mills based on scrap metal and the big integrated mills that made steel from you know, raw materials. And uh, Clay showed them that the mini mills started out making rebar, the simplest thing you can make and gradually developed capability that allowed them to move up into the sheet steel market. And they eventually took something like 40% market share away from the big steel companies, and which was really devastating to the big steel companies. And even when the big steel companies tried to use mini mills, they failed. So, so Andy... Uh, started talking to his people about you know what they needed to do and the project they created was called rebar and intel, intel developed they went after the low end and they built processors that were much less expensive anyway so sometime later andy grove was asked to be the keynote speaker at the big uh, consumer electronics show in las vegas which is this big, big huge event thousands and thousands of people lots of companies go and uh, he stood up there and showed Clay's model on the screen there must have been 15,000 people in the room and he said he basically said this book held the book up said this book should be read by everybody in this business because if you don't understand what's said here and what's taught here you're going to die. You're going to die. And he went on to explain why. Well, in the room was a Forbes reporter. And the Forbes reporter got this idea of, of writing an article about Clay's ideas and Andy Grove and Clay put them on the cover. And he convinced his editors to do it. And they put, well, you see the picture. Clay's about 6'8", and Andy Grove's like 5'9", or something like that. And, uh, you know, he, they, it, was a, it was a pretty, you know, well, it's a really compelling picture. But this, the thing was, and, you know, the title was Andy Grove's Big Thinker. So here's Clay, the big guy, and he's the big thinker. Well, as soon as that cover hit the newsstands, and I started a little bit before that, but as soon as that cover hit the newsstands, the sales of the book just exploded. And it just took off and it became, uh, you know, it's been called one of the best business books ever written. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's just sold, you know, so 
hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of copies right now. And it was all because there was just this confluence of things, the right ideas with the right guy. Because Andy Grove was very highly respected. And he was a no-nonsense guy. He was a very tough-minded guy. Everybody knew that Andy Grove was super smart and very tough-minded. And if Andy Grove says, you need to read this, you better read it because he, was, he had that kind of influence. And as soon as it happened, the book just became, just exploded and uh, changed Clay's life. Because before that, he had a nice book. It was kind of, you know, selling, but it wasn't going, it wasn't going into the stratosphere like it did when Andy Grove picked it up and Clay got on the cover of Forbes. It's amazing. Speaking of confluence, I thought we'd share the other cover because Another thing you told me, and, and I knew Clay had struggled with sickness and illness for a long time, but I didn't know he had a succession of widowmaker illnesses that you, you tell us about. And there's a there's another cover, and on the cover is Clay, and the cover, a great picture of Clay, and it's called The Survivor. And I'd love you to share this, but what I thought about this was how it, it reminded me of doing the right thing it's almost like you you had a predestined end end line, and by doing the right thing, you got an extra bit of time, and then you did <laughs> you did the right thing, and it was almost like he had paid he had paid forward in many ways, and he he earned himself extra time, including learning English all over again, as you'll tell us about. Okay, so Clay, um, this all started for Clay quite early in his life. He it started in Boston. Uh, he was probably at that time, um, late twenties and he started feeling really tired and lethargic. And there was a good friend who was in his uh, congregation at church. He was a doctor. He talked to him and he said, the doctor said, I think you have diabetes. You better go get it checked. So this guy is an endocrinologist and, um, he got checked and sure enough, he had diabetes. And so Clay had to manage diabetes. It was adult onset diabetes and he had to manage diabetes for all of his life. Okay. So, so that's number, that's the first thing that happened to him. And then many years later now, so he's managing diabetes and uh, many years later, he had a series of things happen to him. Quite extraordinary. So first he, um, he is serving in uh, his church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as a religious leader covering a fairly large area in uh, the Northeast United States and into Canada. And so he has an assignment in Montreal. So he's up in Montreal, Canada, and he decides to drive. It's about five hours from Boston. So he drives up to Montreal, and then he finishes Sunday afternoon and he drives home. The next day is uh, Columbus Day, which is a holiday in Massachusetts. This is in October. And he goes out and he starts raking leaves in his yard, just kind of having a relaxing day at work. While he's raking leaves, he has what the doctors call a widowmaker heart attack. And it's, it's caused by occlusion in the, aorta, in the aorta that comes down into the heart from the top. And normally it's like death, almost 100%. But in Clay's case, it happened 
at a moment when his wife was right there. And he, he, he was in tremendous pain. And he cried, he was like, ah, like that. And his wife took him. She had presence of mind. She was inspired. She took him, stuck him in the car, drove 200 yards down the street to the fire station. And it happened to be the EMTs were there. They stuck him in the ambulance, got him on the way to Mount Auburn Hospital, and started giving him medication right in the, right in the, in the ambulance. So he gets to the hospital. They get him right into the, you know, they radio in, they're coming. He's had a heart attack, blah, blah, blah. They get him in there. And so probably from the time the heart attack hit until he's at Mount Auburn, literally is no more than five to seven minutes. It's amazing. And maybe 10. You get him in the hospital, saved his life. Saved his life. Got a stent in there, cleared out the occlusion, put a stent in. He's fine. He's in the hospital for a couple of days and comes home and he kind of rests and then he's fine. So he has a widow maker heart attack that he survives. All right. The next one coming along is cancer. So this one happened, is manifested in Washington, D.C. He was invited down because he's, you know, Clay's famous. He's like way famous. And he's a, he's a major figure in the northeastern United States as far as the church goes, and he's a world-famous guy. So they invite him to go down to the uh, Christmas lighting at the temple of the church in Maryland, just outside D.C. It's a beautiful temple. And they have this big event. They invite ambassadors from all the countries in in Washington, D.C., and congressmen and senators. It's a big event. Anyway, Clay's the speaker. He's the featured guy. So he flies down, and he gets down there, and before he can speak, he is hit with incredible pain in his back. Just, I mean, it's devastating, debilitating pain. He can't move. He's just, he's just, he's just shocked because it came on suddenly. No warning, no leading up to it, just all of a sudden, just pain he couldn't stand. They get him to the airport, fly him home, get him to the hospital. They discover that he has, um, he has a mass in his abdomen that starts pressing on the spinal cord. So, that's, so as it grew, as, as soon as it starts hitting the spinal cord, it causes this incredible pain. And it's about the size of a softball, big, big ball like that, huge mass. And then they found that he had another tumor that's wrapped around his esophagus. So he has this big softball, then he has another one wrapped around his esophagus, and there's some others around. So he has all these tumors all over his abdomen inside. And so they, they did a lot of tests. It was really complicated because it was a compound tumor. It wasn't just one kind of cancer. It was a couple of kinds of cancer. Eventually, they figured it out. And they administered chemotherapy, and within just a few weeks, it was all gone. All the tumors were dead. They were gone. They disappeared. And then the doctors explained to him that they figured out, so it's called B-cell carcinoma was one of them. Anyway, they explained to him that this, they couldn't cure him, that the cancer 
from all the research that cancer would come back, but every time it came back, they could kill it. And so he said, we're going to turn this into a chronic disease for you. And that's exactly what happened. So from that point on to the the rest of his life, he had cancer. And he was on, they put him on low-dose oral uh, chemotherapy, very small dose. They took all the time. And then the cancer did come back. And then he would have to go into treatment, and it was exactly Okay, so he's now he's now got diabetes, a widowmaker heart attack, and now he's got cancer, and he's a cancer patient for the rest of his life. Okay, so the next thing that happens is a few years later he's sitting in a a um, a council room in the church in Kendall Square. If you know Boston, Kendall Square is right across the Charles River from Mass General Hospital. So he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, his speech gets slurred, and he starts having trouble following what's going on. You know, he's he's talking, and all of a sudden, he's just not making sense. And there's a physician there in the room who works at Mass General and immediately recognizes that Clay is having a stroke. He rushes up. He says to Clay, we have to get you out of here rushes him downstairs because he could walk, got him in his car, drove to Mass General, probably within a couple of minutes of recognizing it was there, maybe you know three to five minutes, no longer, gets him into the emergency room, they get a neurosurgeon there, they start treating him, getting him into the hospital, diagnosing, she's had a massive stroke. The stroke basically devastated his... Um, his language center. And what most people don't know is not only did he lose all his Korean, because he served a mission for the church in Korea, and he lost all of his Korean, but he also lost all of his English. He couldn't speak English. And so for months, he took um, this product called Rosetta Stone, which is designed to teach language, in English. He took the English Rosetta Stone and he taught himself to speak English again. And the doctors, his neurosurgeons, didn't think it would work because the part of his brain that normally handles language was gone. Just, it wasn't there anymore. It just was devastated. And so he had to teach another part of his brain to take over those functions and recreate those pathways. And he did it. He worked, he, he was relentless. And he taught himself to speak English again. And he got about, oh, I would say maybe 85% of his English ability back. So if you listen to him after the stroke and when he got back, he, and he started teaching again and giving talks and being himself, but he had to kind of tone things down because now he's had a heart attack, he's a cancer patient, and he's had a stroke. And so he doesn't have as much energy as he used to. So he has to tone it down. But he went on teaching and giving talks. And I watched him do this. uh, And you could tell, having seen him when he was in his prime versus now, he's slower. He hunts for words a little bit. 
some words he just can't quite find, so he finds other words. And so it's a little bit a little bit less smooth, but still great content. It was a miracle. It's amazing. As you said, the guy has the top three killers of people, uh, medical killers of people, you know, heart attack, stroke, and cancer. Plus he has diabetes. It's these four things that kill people, and he survives them all. And that's why the the article is about being a survivor. And he, you know, in that article, he attributes it to his faith, that he had faith in God, that God would bless him if he did his part, worked hard, that he still felt he had important things to do on the earth. And before he gets taken and transferred uh, out of mortality, he, he wanted to stay and do more stuff, which he did for many years. And toward the end, the, the, one of the things that really got him was the chemotherapy that he took for many years. Uh, and uh, all this other stuff he was doing uh, caused neuropathy in his feet. He couldn't feel his feet anymore. And he, couldn't, he could move his legs, but he couldn't, he, he couldn't feel where he was. So he had to start using walking sticks to kind of get around. And it was, it was sad because he, and, and you know, it just, he, at some point he just wore out and that's what killed him. It, he wore out, <laughs> you know, from all the stuff that he had to deal with. Pretty amazing. Amazing. And one of your friends and co a former colleague, both in BYU and Harvard and in the church is Clark Gilbert. And Clark told us that when he discovered he he had the stroke, he's like, now I can actually teach how will you measure your life as a module in the in, in the school, and nobody can give out to me. I, I thought that was very funny. <laughs> he's like, nobody nobody can hold it against me now because I've had these four things. They're like, kind of, we'll give Clay a pass. You're good, Clay. I thought that was great. But you mentioned Andy Grove as a matter of fact guy and a task driven guy. I get the feeling you are too, and I, I have limited time with you. <laughs> I want to jump to get some theory, You share with you our audience some of the theories that you talked about, because I mentioned in the intro how Clay was inspired and used some of your theories as foundational for his own work. And I wanted to jump into those, Kim. I, and I thought we, we try and compact it as much as possible, because you wrote a paper in 1985 called The Intersection of Design Hierarchies and Market Concepts in technological evolution, which is a remarkable paper. And in there, you state technological change in cars, power plants and manufacturing equipment often takes the form of long periods of incremental innovations along established technological trajectories interrupted only by the emergence of new technological paradigms. Sounds like sustaining innovation to me. But before we looked at that, I, I wanted to jump because I found little excerpts in various books such as Disrupting Class, for example, and one of the theories that Clay talked about was the theory of modularity. And this links so strongly to the book that you co-authored called Design Rules. And to remind our audience here, in Clay's writings, he says, disruption is often a two-stage process. In the first stage of disruption, an innovator makes a product much more affordable and simpler to use than what currently exists. But making the product is still complicated and expensive. He goes on then to talk about Microsoft and IBM and DEC, for example. But at the very end of all that excerpt, he says, 
As a result, you had to be integrated to play in the game and you had to design everything in order to do anything. That, that seems like a throwaway line, but if you read your work and you read that line, it makes absolute sense. And maybe you'll unpack that. I know we're limited on our time, but you'll unpack that whole idea of modularity and then connect it to Clay's work and your work. I think the simplest way to think about modularity is that uh, it is a way of approaching a complex system where through design, this is an important word that's in Clay's phrase there, in design, you break that complex system up into modules that can operate or be designed independently of one another because you've identified the key interactions across the modules and you take those interactions out of the design process because you already know what they are and you specify them in advance and those are called design rules. And every module knows what they are. And then when that happens, the modules can be designed independently. And that first became apparent in the 1960s. The first computer that really used modular design was the IBM 360. And it had an enormous impact because prior to that time, every time you wanted to innovate in a computer system, say at IBM, you had to redesign everything. You had to change everything. The printers, the memory, you know, the, the storage devices, the hardware, the software, everything had to be designed because everything was so connected. They figured out how to make the computer modular so that you could specify the design rules and then you could create a modular design so that you could swap out peripherals, you could put new software in, you could write new software programs, you didn't have to change the hardware, and so forth, okay? It was an enormous success, as you know. In fact, it, it just was an incredible product. But one thing that IBM didn't anticipate was that if you knew the design rules, you could design products to work in the 360 without being inside IBM. And that first happened in disk drives, which is where Clay you know, made his mark in his dissertation. And the disk drive people figured out, wait a minute, and these were all IBM engineers. And they were having trouble getting IBM to listen to them when they talked about, look, these great big huge disks we're making now, that's not the way it's going to work in the future. We're going to be able to put much more information in much smaller spaces. And we're going to make much smaller drives that have as much capacity. And they couldn't get people to listen. And so they left. And they took with them the design rules. And they created new companies. And they created, you know, disk drives for IBM 360 and started selling them. And they were much less expensive and much more powerful. And IBM, of course, sued them but lost. And eventually that spawned a whole industry of people making peripheral equipment, printers, disk drive stuff for IBM. So IBM spawned this whole industry. Well, the, the thing about modularity is not only can the stuff be designed independently, but you can have, because you have that independence, you can also have multiple experiments going on. 
people trying all sorts of different things. So it actually spawned enormous innovation as people tried all sorts of new things uh, because they could be, all be done independently but at the same time. And so it created a very dynamic, you know, what had once been, you know, IBM owned everything, became this hugely dynamic industry over time. And that's where Clay comes in because he comes into the disk drive industry, which is this very dynamic industry. And, and he, he comes into it having studied uh, with me and with Joe Bauer about the way firms innovate and, and brought that idea that uh, the changes that are taking place in the disk drive industry are really dynamic. The, the people who are number one at one time, they, they're not number one after the change, technologies change, even though the technological changes didn't seem to be all that great. And, uh, and so he began studying why is that. And that connects to, you know, so that connects to the work that I did with uh, Rebecca Henderson, who was one of my doctoral students, and some of my own work that you mentioned. Because we were always interested in not only what should firms do to be more innovative, but how does innovation shape the competitive environment in an industry, and what explains the evolution of the industry and the evolution of the technology? How does that work? And it turned out that modularity was a big, big deal. And it opened up all these opportunities. And it also pointed us in the direction of looking at the relationships between the modules and the system and how those, how those um, relationships were uh, identified and established in rules, design rules that could be communicated across, across engineering groups and even across firms, and what that meant for the organization of the firm. So we had this idea that was, uh, you know, it was an ancient idea, actually, and that we started to see in this work is that, is that the design of the product, the technology, gets imprinted on the organization in important ways, not just in the structure, but in the the fine processes that define problem solving and communication patterns and so forth. And that was the work that Rebecca Henderson did and that she and I published a paper about in 1990 that argued that if you look at, if you look at the relationship between modules and the system, you have to look both at the components, that is what's going on inside the module, <coughs> excuse me, and the relationship between the module and the system, like what's the, what's the connector? And once you do that, you start to see that, oh, people communicate within certain patterns and they develop problem-solving strategies and a whole bunch of other stuff that connects the, connects the organization together, becomes the kind of living tissue of the organization. And that's where the idea of architectural innovation came from. That you get innovation that looks simple and can't, you can't understand why it causes so much disruption because it doesn't affect what's happening inside the components. It affects the relationship between the components and the system. 
and, and between other components. And so that kind of innovation turned out to be really crucial. And, and a lot of disruptive technology is actually disrupting the architecture. Sometimes it's components, but a lot of it is reconfiguring, using existing components, but reconfiguring. And that happened in disk drives, it happened in automobiles, it happened in computers, it, it's, you know, it's all over the place. Now, when you get both, when the components change and the architecture changes, then you get radical innovation. Uh, when you get just the components change and the it relationships don't change, then you get kind of module innovation, innovation within that component, but it doesn't really change the relationship in the system. There's four kind of main points in that paper, and I'm going to try and get them, <laughs> get them into this 10-minute period that we have. So the paper is called The Design of the Interaction of Design Hierarchies and Market Concepts in Technological Evolution. It's 1985, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this series, Kim, was also, and it led me down many, many rabbit holes, including discovering your work, which I wasn't au fait with, same with Joe Bowers. And just as Andy Grove said, you got to read this book. I think you got to read your work. I got to read Joe Bauer's work. It sent me down the back catalog of Rita McGrath's work, etc. It's it's foundational work. And just like you say, design, say in the automobile industry compounds, you base things based on, is it going to be an electric car? Or is it going to be diesel or petrol? And then you'd make decisions thereafter. The same with knowledge. I, I found a nice correlation between the knowledge, how it compounds and how it builds upon each other. So any, anyway, back to this paper. In the paper, you develop a conceptual framework for analyzing the sequence of technological changes that underlie the development of industries. The framework examines the interaction between design decisions and the choices of customers. Using examples from autos and semiconductors, the paper argues the logic of problem solving in design and the formation of concepts that underlie choice in marketplace in the marketplace impose a hierarchical structure on the evolution of technology. That is such a foundational theory that we have to unpack it. And I know we can't do it justice in the time we have together, but I'd love to at the, the simplest level, if you can decipher that for audience, so, so at least it's a new lens that they can see through in the future. Yeah. So I think his starting point is a, is a f very fundamental aspect of human beings because we're talking about human beings making choices, both in, as customers and as designers of stuff. The designers are in a market where there's you know, they're trying to find those technical solutions that are going to be most attractive in the market, right? And the customers are trying to find and understand this product that will be most beneficial to them. So there's this kind of interaction going on. And there's really an important thing about human beings, and that is that we are organized, our brains are hierarchical. We tend, to, we tend to try to find the most, uh, you know, the most important idea that really defines what we're after and then break it down into its subparts and into its further parts and then find those combinations that seem most attractive to us. And so there's this interaction between, when a product's new, between the product 
and the choices that customers make. And the choices customers make, the argument is, are based on a conceptual hierarchy that they start to form in their mind. It doesn't come ready-made. They form it as they gain experience and see others gaining experience using the product. And that hierarchy is um, how we, as human beings, come to assess products and figure out what, what they are and how they fit into our lives. So a simple example is somebody, and most people come to this having experience with something related. There are occasionally things that come into our lives that are completely de novo, never been anything like it, okay? But you can see it in, in uh, mobile phones. You can see it in uh, cars. You can see it in all sorts of stuff. So if you take the car, what's the thing that's the antecedent? Well, it's a horse and a buggy. It's a horse and a carriage. You know, you, and so for people, as they started looking at, well, what is this thing, this car? The natural thing to do was to think of it as a horseless carriage. And that's exactly the concept, by the way, that was in the popular discussion. It's a horseless carriage. And so it was natural for them to bring to what do you care about a carriage? What's what makes you know, well it's does it you know, how does it work? How do you get it? What and then say, well, what takes the place of the horse? Well, it turns out that was a key thing. What's the motive power? And how does that change the experience of, the, of being in this horse's carriage? And so forth. Okay. Now, in the, in the paper, I used the example of asparagus. <laughs> you remember that? You know, it's what we do. You know, what's this? If you've never I'm going to share on the screen, Kim, I'll share on the screen the image, if you don't mind. I, oh, I ca captured the, the image of the asparagus because this will help those who are watching us on YouTube. Yeah. So if you, look, if you look at asparagus and you've never seen it before, you, you're trying to figure out, well, what is it? But you have in your mind some experience that allows you to kind of figure it out. Well, first of all, it's a plant. So this is like really important. Is it an animal or is it a plant? No, it's a plant. Okay. Is it edible or not inedible? Well, apparently it's edible. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? Is it yellow? Is it green? Is it beans? Is it spinach? No, it's asparagus. Well, it's, so it's a green vegetable. That's the key. And once you understand it's a green vegetable, now you've got a whole set of experience. If you never had asparagus before, say, oh, it's a green vegetable. Although in Germany, sometimes it's white. But, you know, it's a green vegetable. And now you say, oh, okay, so it's a vegetable. So how, what do we do with green vegetables? Well, you can chop them up and put them in a salad. You can boil it. You can cook it. You can have it for a snack. And you try it. But you know what you're dealing with because you have this hierarchy in your mind of what is it. And obviously, if you've never had asparagus, but lots of experience with green vegetables, that hierarchy is almost instantaneous, you know, that you go through it. But it, but it got built over time through your experience with, with uh, these other products. And that happened with the cars. And it happens with mobile phones. What's a mobile phone? Well, it's, and you know, you have these, you listen to the words, landline. You know, it's not a landline. It's not a fixed thing. It's mobile. 
but it's still a phone. But then people started putting stuff in it, like, oh, it's got a camera in it. And it's like it, so all of a sudden it evolves and changes and, and that's exactly customers learn how to think about it. And the designers are putting more emphasis, you know, on this and that. Why does, you know, I've got this, uh, this iPhone here. Why does Apple spend so much time developing sophisticated lenses for this phone? It's, it's a phone. Well, not really. It's a multifunctional digital device that's now be now used as a camera more often than, than not. And you can do text and you can watch videos and I don't know, you can do all sorts of things with it. And so that helps explain as you move down this hierarchy, it branches, new stuff comes up, and the designers are continually trying to search for the most powerful kind of trajectory that will really deliver the value that customers really, really have. It's so valuable to them. And the customers are shaping this thing. You know, so I asked, I asked the question, well, why was it in the 1920s that the auto companies were putting so much emphasis on transmissions? It's a huge amount of innovation in transmissions. Why is that? Well, it's because they had enough motive power but it was really hard to shift gears, really hard. And it took, it took in order to drive, for example, a old car back in the you know, 1918 era, it took skill to shift the gears, much more than it does to drive a stick shift today. I mean, it took real skill. So they were working on transmissions because it was very clear that customers were really focused on that and so forth. So... There's this interaction, and it, it creates. Now, what happens, this is where clay stuff comes into play, is what happens over time is that the customer hierarchy and the design hierarchy go to kind of go like this. They get, they get solidified, become stable. And now you get what you call sustaining innovation. You get lower cost, improved quality, you know, you get variety of little stuff, and it's it's sort of tweaking around the edges, but the basic thing is there. It gets solidified, and the way you make money and really do well as a as a provider is really provide outstanding uh, product that's well designed and really matches what customers need, and the customers' needs are pretty well defined. They evolve a little bit, but there's not a big change. So you get like this. <clears throat> And if the organizational capacity and processes are really influenced by that technology, they get, they get ingrained. And so in Joe Bauer's world, what happens is the resource allocation process comes to be a part of this and gets established inside the firm, gets really connected, the incentives get established, the communication patterns, they're all really beautiful. And then along comes a little whoop. In Clay's world, something happens. Somebody figures out, oh, I can provide this function that's not as good, typically, but it's really inexpensive, and it has this other feature that the guys are not providing. Like, it's really small, or it can be delivered really fast, or something. There's some hook. They, they, get, a, they get a toehold in the market, you know? So this is Sony with its transistor radios. 
that are terrible radios. I owned one, 1958. I was nine years old. I remember it. It was a terrible radio, but I could carry it in my pocket. We had a huge radio in our living room that was vacuum tube based. It was beautiful. Tremendous sound. It was a beautiful radio. I couldn't carry it with me. It was so heavy, it took like four or five people to lift it because they had all these vacuum tubes. But I could take this little Sony radio. I could put an earphone in my ear and I could have a radio. It was terrible, but I could carry it around. And so, you know, they start like that. And that's a whole different set. You know, it looks, it's a radio for crying out loud. Okay. Yeah. And it does have transistors in it, but those are pretty simple. But it's small. And that changes everything. And the same thing happened with cars, happened with phones, happened with copiers, all sorts of devices. And, and it happens in lots of other things. It happens in medical devices and in services and all sorts of things, as Clay showed. And what he argued, this is where, the, this is where his brilliance showed up, is he argued that, and it, this is what caught Andy Grove's attention, was that the very things that made the established firm successful the very things that constitute outstanding management are the things that make it impossible for them or very difficult for them to respond to these new things. So it's not that they're bad managers or they're stupid or they're dumb or they don't know what they're doing. It's that they are trapped in this, out, this, this nexus between the customer hierarchy and the physical design hierarchy, and they're trapped. They're outstanding in that, plus they're making a huge amount of money. And so to, re to allocate resources to this other thing is a really difficult because they're, it's, it, the opportunity costs are enormous. But they have this long-term view, and over the longer term, these, these, the Sonys become a lot better. And so do the small cars. And eventually, the small cars get a lot bigger, and pretty soon you have Lexus. And, you know, and then you're, they're eating your lunch. And that happens. That's his, that's his argument. And it's all, you know, it grows out of all this stuff. And it's all kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, and that's how, that's how knowledge works. It, you know, it builds, accumulates. Some, and then somebody comes along like Clay and says, wait, this has enormous implications. Because we already knew that firms had a hard time responding. And Rebecca showed, and I showed in some previous work, that a lot of that difficulty in response was precisely in the problem solving, the communication patterns, the stuff that made it really difficult, that even when they tried, even when they allocated resources, they couldn't do it. It was really difficult. And, and Clay comes along and says, you know, the, the difficulties that they have grow out of the fact that they're trapped in this trapped in this organizational nexus in which doing the right thing for the long term is incredibly expensive and there you go and then you get disruptive technology disruptive yeah the thing i really got out of it kim was um that you so you you've you've got something you figured out and it works but also it's not just the, the hierarchy of the organization and the design of the organization and the management in the silos or the, or the sectors of the organization. It's your mind. 
because you get stuck in the paradigm of thinking. And it's just like you were mentioning about asparagus or vacuum tubes. It's like, well, it's a vacuum tube. Like, what, what else are you going to do with it? You know, it's, it's just going to. And then Clay, I can imagine Clay reading this work and kind of going, oh, that sounds like, you know, square peg into round hole cramming is born, you know, so he, he, I can kind of imagine them letting these things marinate. And then with his persistence and his, his voracious reading that these theories started to, to crop up over time. But one of the things you say is about the, the managerial skills required over the life cycle of an organization change depending on what stage it's at. And I think that's, it's just one line that you say in that paper. And it's so incredibly important for the listener to this show, for example, people who work in innovation, is if you're joining an organization, you need to understand what life cycle stage it's at, because your skill set might not match what it's actually good at at that time. And you're just going to be frustrated. I, I thought that was an incredibly insightful line in the in the book, the, the exact line is, effective innovation requires different managerial skills in different contexts as per transmission like you mentioned yeah that's right the the other thing that's interesting about this whole business and we uh carlos baldwin and i published an article in 1997 i think in hbr called managing the age of modularity and the very end of that article uh we wrote that in a modular world, you're going to get a lot more innovation. You're going to get a lot more experimentation. And this whole idea of getting locked in to a particular design, particular thing, you have to absolutely guard against. And you can, you can achieve the same pattern of profitability, but you don't have to get locked in. You, you don't have to because you can organize yourself and let the modular character of the technology actually create a modular organizational form that can be equally productive and efficient, but is much more open to innovation and change. And where and so that calls that that calls for an entirely different kind of leadership, different kind of managerial skill than the one where you're moving down a hierarchy of design and customer focus and then get locked in. You, you, what you do is you imagine whatever we're doing right now, we're going to do really well, but we know it's going to change. And so we organize ourselves and create people and our mindset is such that we understand that we need innovation taking place in this organization all the time. And it can come from anywhere. And so we change our resource allocation system. We change how we communicate. We're much more transparent. We're much more open. And we're ready. Plus, we can be just as efficient as we would have been had we done this hierarchical business. Those are the organizations that will prosper in a modular world, which is the world we live in. Beautiful. And that speaks so much to what you're talking about in the article as well. It's obvious you are a teacher because you talk so much about learning and that openness to learning as the as the books, as you mentioned <laughs> that Clay talked about these technological shifts. I didn't do the sound as well as you did, but these th these anomalies that appear change the landscape, change the context, and you need to be ready and have an open mindset in order to embrace them. I thought it came as a final message, maybe 
you might just say a final word on your great friend because this is the last in this series this three-month series that we've had it's been an incredible privilege doing it and i know you were absolutely great friends in many many contexts so maybe you'll close this series on clay christensen well, i'd be happy to so clay clayton christensen is the kind of man that does not come along very often. He was a remarkable human being. Um, and, you know, he was big in stature, but I believe he was even bigger in, the, in his spirit, in his character, in who he really was uh, as a human being. He was uh, remarkable. Um, he... You know, he was a human being, so he had his he had his weaknesses and flaws, but they were completely overshadowed by the depth of his commitment to his faith, to his students, to ideas, to trying to make the world a better place. And, you know, if you look at his life, he not only made things better in the large, gave people new ideas and new concepts that helped them create better enterprises and better, you know, better lives for the people. But he also did it in the small. There are so many people that he blessed and helped throughout his life. And so I think the book he wrote, How, do you, How Are You Going to Measure Your Life? We can apply to him because he lived what he taught. You're going to measure your life by the influence you have on the people that you meet, that you touch, that you can influence. And in that score, on that, on that criteria, he was absolutely outstanding, amazing influence on other people because he really cared. He cared about them. He loved them. And often there were people he would only meet once. It didn't matter. He was, he was, you know, he was a Christ-like man. And it's amazing. I, I am grateful to have known him and loved him. And, and uh, I uh, look forward to seeing him again. So I look forward to meeting him eventually one day. He was also the Kim B. Clark professor. So that's why I thought it'd be a lovely way to remember him by having you on the show. Clayton Christensen, rest in peace. Kim B. Clark, thank you for joining us. Happy to do it, Aiden. Thank you so much. Kim, that was awesome, man. Thank you.